0: It's Tuesday, January the 18th, and welcome back to Goodfellows, a Hoover Institution broadcast examining social, economic, political, and geopolitical concerns. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm a Hoover Distinguished Policy Fellow. I'll be moderating today's show. That makes me the gateway to the stars of our show, Hoover's Goodfellows, as we jokingly refer to them. That would include the historian, Neil Ferguson, the economist, John Cochran, the geostrategist, Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster, decidedly casually clad today, I might add, looking good HR. And today, gentlemen, we have a guest. We're going to talk about guns today and joining us for our conversation is Charles C.W. Cook, National Review senior writer and co-host of the Mad Dogs and Englishmen podcast. Hey, we stole from Scorsese. He can steal from Joe Cocker, I guess. (laughs) Charles is a graduate of the University of Oxford, where he studied modern history and politics. That explains the podcast title and his accent, as you'll soon hear. He moved to America in 2011, becoming a citizen in 2018 and taking up residence in what seems to be an increasingly crowded Florida. Charles, welcome to Good fellows.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: So, guns. Um, I did a little research for the show, Charles. Uh, Here's what I've learned. Uh, Apparently, there are 400 million or so guns in this country. Uh, There is no hard count. It's an estimate. Uh, That means that there are more guns than there are Americans. That means there are about 100 million more guns than there are cell phones or automobiles. If we break down gun ownership on a per capita basis, Charles, the United States is far ahead of second place Yemen, which is in the midst of a civil war for seven plus years. We are far ahead of third place Switzerland. Swiss men, after mandatory arms training for militia service, are allowed to keep service rifles at home. You've been here for 10 years, Charles, like Neil Ferguson, who came to our shores as well. You've studied our curious ways. What is unique about the relationship between Americans and guns?
1: Well, It's funny that you mention Yemen, because normally when you compile lists with America at the top, the next country is Germany or France or Britain or Canada. And that is not the case. I mean, the the United States is an outlier in the Anglosphere. It's an outlier, though, in that it has retained what was once considered... To be a right in much of the Anglosphere. So as is often the case in America, what you have here is the retention of classical liberalism that has been abandoned elsewhere. And it's slightly less stark, but America is also an outlier on speech. The First Amendment's protections are far, far stronger than you would find in Britain or Australia or South Africa, or what you will. Um, And I think there's a couple of reasons for that. Just Sort of start things off. One is the second amendment clearly is written into the constitution and that makes a big difference in the way uh, Americans see it. There was a legal protection of the right to bear arms in British law, but firstly, it wasn't applied to everyone. Um, uh, and secondly, it was chipped away over time. It was a law that had passed through parliament and uh, as such, it, it um, was easily uh, repealed. Um, And the second difference is that because it's such a big country, because it had a frontier and because it was so much more hostile um, and often less civilized than, say, Britain, by the time that gun control as an idea became debated, which it wasn't in the early republic, which we can come on to, there were already so many guns in circulation that the... Uh, prospect of uh, picking them all up as they tried to do in Australia and have largely done in Britain was impossible.
0: All right. Well, Neil, you're also a newcomer. You, you've you studied the American culture. What's your take on Americans and guns? Well, I'm terrified of guns and always have been. Uh, I went to a,
2: a school in Scotland where we had to shoot World War II rifles, and I was quite spectacularly bad at that. I've done my best to avoid firing guns throughout my life. I'm sort of the opposite of HR. Uh, And so I I come to this debate as a sort of proven uh, gunaphobe. And the way I've come to think about this as as an American, like Charles Naturalised American of British origin, is that the United States is kind of a social Darwinist society in practice. Not, Not in... It's not explicit anymore, but it's essentially a place where there's just a higher risk of death from a whole variety of different sources than in most comparable developed countries. And if you compare it with Scandinavia or indeed Britain, you're just going to get you're going to get the wrong answer because it's it's different. And it's not just guns that you're more likely to be shot by. It's clearly COVID that you're more likely to be killed by, and opioids that you're more likely to have an overdose from. And I could go on and on. And I think the key is just that Americans have uh, a relatively high threshold when it comes to risk, higher certainly than West Europeans. When it comes to guns, it's much more like a Latin American country as it's like a Latin American country in a bunch of other ways, increasingly it's, it's politics. But whenever British people say to me, how can you stand to live in America where there's just a school shooting every other day and you're constantly dodging the bullets as you cross the street? I I tell them two things. First of all, that really isn't the experience of life on the Stanford campus. The bullets I dodge here are metaphorical, not real. (laughs) And secondly, uh, Americans look at your cancer survival rates uh, on the National Health Service. and They think you're pretty crazy. It's just that British people choose to die Of uh, badly diagnosed and badly treated cancer, and Americans prefer the risk of flying bullets.
0: Interesting. So, 155 uh, gun deaths in the UK last year, 40,175 gun deaths in the United States. John, in HR, does this mean that Americans simply have come to accept gun deaths as part Mm -hmm. of being an American?
3: I think it has a lot to do with the tradition and the history, as we've already been talking about. I'm, I'm visiting friends who are Canadians and and uh we we're discussing this what's the difference, right? Because we're we're both in North America and 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 uh I think it it in large measure comes down to the fact that we gained our independence through through armed resistance and, and a revolution. And and of course as probably already mentioned, you know, the frontier and the, the need to have the you know, the rights to bear arms uh, for sustenance as well as for defense and and the malicious prediction that was associated really with the defense of the colonies, and before the, the revolution. So, as a historian, I kind of I think it has it has a, a cultural basis to it. But you know, of course, because I've been handling weapons, uh, you know, my whole adult life, uh, I don't think we ought to fear weapons. I think we ought to fear criminals who have them and people who don't know what the heck they're doing with them, you know, untrained people with weapons. Let
4: me chime in. <clears throat> um... This, once you bring up guns, it's a great way to start a, a fight, not a gunfight, but a verbal fight in, in a lot of America. I, uh, when we were talking about this thing, I, I hope to steer us away from the minutia of, of the Talmudic reading of the Constitution that quickly... Oh, please now, just please don't.
2: I want to talk about... Comments. Okay, we'll get, we'll get there. I uh, just but
4: want to, l- the I to sort of fr- tee up some issues for us to then follow rather than just guns. So I'll, in deference to Neil, we, yes, we can, let us, historians especially, debate exactly the 17th, the 18th century use of commas in the, uh, in that clause. But really, what are the issues? The, there are two, it, you know, why do you want a gun in any way? Well, uh, there's the question of self-defense against crime, and there is this question which we should talk about, which is bubbling under there, about uh, independence, militia, armed resistance to tyranny, and so forth let's focus first on, on crime. People say, you know, you have to have guns to defend yourself against crime. And that seems to me, uh, once posed as a policy issue, not a traditions, constitution, and so forth issue, kind of a curious way of putting it. First of all, of the 400 million guns, uh, only one, one in a million is ever used to, uh, to in a crime or to defend it against a crime. The idea of get rid of the guns to stop the shooting uh, makes, makes no sense. Like, like everything, almost all of those guns just are, are never used for, for anything. But it does raise the question, why do Americans, well, let me pose the economic question, demand, not just your right to have guns, but people have, a, have evidently shelved out a fair amount of money to have 400 million guns sitting around their houses. Why do Americans, rights or no rights, feel the need and desire to own quite so many guns? Well, it's a reason people want to own guns, because they live in, in violent neighborhoods. And uh, uh, a lot of effort on that, I think, would, would make, um, rather than fighting about the gun restrictions and trying to restrict supply, why are we not talking about demand? And, and you know, perhaps gun ownership could retreat to something that is a right. It's a historical tra- uh, tradition, but one that most Americans don't feel the need to exercise.
2: Well, can can I can I perhaps insist on a little historical background here? And I'd love to talk about the commas because they seem like they're really important here.
4: Well, and do Neil deal take us to the historical background? I mean, this whole issue of resistance against tyranny is important too. English law had a lot of resist had a lot of gun restrictions and and our framers were very unhappy about being told they couldn't hold guns for a lot of reasons
0: all right gentlemen here is the exact language of the second amendment to the united states constitution quote a well-regulated militia comma being necessary to the security of the free state comma the right of the people to keep and bear arms comma shall not be infringed uh, Charles Cook, you are teaching an online course on the right to bear arms. You have just looked at the historic nature of the Second Amendment. What is so complicated about those words?
1: Well, I don't think it is particularly complicated. I do understand why people are confused by it now. And if you go back through American history, you'll find legal scholars in the late 19th century warning against the coming misinterpretation of the Second Amendment, in particular, Thomas Cooley in 1892, in what was basically the um, default textbook of the time, says, here's what's going to happen. We're going to read this sentence, and we're going to misunderstand it. But then he goes on to explain that the, uh, the reference to a militia came in a debate over uh, standing armies, and that the right pre-exists it. It's an imperfect analogy, but much in the way that you might pull a jury from the general population, you would pull a militia from a citizenry that was already presumed to be armed. And if you go back and you look at the Second Amendment, the, the argument against it's protecting an individual right, which is which is a modern argument, um, seems to rest on the idea that the National Rifle Association and or Justice Scalia invented or misinterpreted this, this individual right in 2008 in the Heller decision. But the reason it doesn't make much sense is that the right to bear arms as a concept in American law was brought over from Britain, um, was, was well established before the revolution but was then instituted in many states before it hit the federal constitution. Pennsylvania, for example, puts a right to bear arms in its constitution. Vermont does one year later in the same document as it abolishes slavery. And by the time you get to the federal constitution, the real debate um, as it relates to individual rights is whether or not we needed a bill of rights at all. And when the anti-federalists win that argument and they prevail upon James Madison to include the the Bill of Rights in the Constitution, that's really the price of admission, Madison says, well, I'm just going to include all of these individual rights we already agree on. Mm -hmm. And all the letters that go back and forth to the ratifying conventions seem to to back that up. Um, So I know we focus a lot on where the commas are and on the prefatory clause um, you know, Eugene Velek would point out, prefatory clauses were actually fairly common at the time of the founding as, as explanatory strictures. It, it just wasn't uh, the subject of very much debate uh, at the time. Um, and if you look at the way that it's explained um, during ratification and immediately afterwards, it is presumed to be uh, an individual right. So I. I don't have much time for the dissenters in the Heller decision and a lot of journalists now who say, oh, it's a collective right. It's been misunderstood. Um, James Madison, when he suggests the Second Amendment, which was originally the fourth, um, along with the First Amendment and what became Amendments One through Eight, he wants to put them into the part of the Constitution dealing with individual rights. He wants to put it into uh, the part of the Constitution, for example, that protects habeas corpus he doesn't suggest putting it next to the militia clause um in all of these little uh examples they, they really militate in in one direction um and uh, i i think it's important to start from there because if we don't we, we're we're applying modern gun control sensibilities to what was actually a debate over something profoundly different
2: okay mm-hmm. charles I, I have a question for you well it's a two-part question the first is about commas, there are clearly too, too many. And if one were to use modern punctuation, that the Second Amendment would read, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of the free state, comma, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. That's what it would be if a modern sub-editor got hold of it. But we don't have a well-regulated militia anymore and it's no longer necessary to the security of the free state. So isn't, in that sense, the Second Amendment anachronistic?
1: You could certainly argue it's anachronistic, although, again, because at the time the militia is drawn from the people who are presumed to have their own arms, the absence of a militia wouldn't undermine the existence of the right, because however you look at the commas or the prefatory clause, the right is still of the people, and everywhere else right and People is used in the Constitution and in the Bill of Rights. It doesn't refer to anything collective. It refers to individuals. So, sure, um, you could make that that argument. Um, that's more of a practical argument. That now we have the police. Do we do we really need this? Um, That said, the Second Amendment, when it was being drafted, went through various iterations. Um, So really, there are two questions in the minds of the founders. One is, how do we protect individual rights, such as the right to keep and bear arms? And the other is, what do we do about the prospect of a standing army? And it's a badly drafted amendment that tries to do both. The original draft actually said the rights of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed, semicolon, and then a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. Um, In some states uh, in the colonial era and post-revolutionary era, you see these concepts mixed up. In some, you don't. Um, In some, you see the right being protected in defense of themselves, that being the people, and of the state. And that's a Lockean concept that was popular in the 18th century that really draws no philosophical distinction between you protecting yourself as an individual and you protecting yourself against tyranny. Um, But I do agree it's badly drafted um, you know, compared to the First Amendment, for example, it, it is not as clear, although it is worth saying that that is partly because our language has changed. I mean, well-regulated, for example, is used throughout Pride and Prejudice to describe Mr. Darcy's uh, behavior. But I mean, I don't think anyone would say, well, <laughs> the government <laughs> is in charge of Mr. Darcy. Um So, uh, you know, we've changed what we mean by arms, we've changed what we mean by well-regulated, we've changed what we mean by militia, and so when you read it now, you think, what what does this mean?
4: Can I ask, um, we're talking about constitution background, uh, given if we're gonna read the language of it and the historical context, which included not just defense against burglars, but also it included militia use, it included uh, historically, Uh, uh, Lots of people, groups of people denied arms because they were being terrorized by other people. Where is the limiting principle? Why do I not have a right to an automatic weapon, a bazooka? Um, I'd kind of like to have a fighter plane fully tricked out. Uh, At the time, was this understood to include the right to own cannon and uh, a well-equipped sailing ship? Uh, How is there, if we're gonna do it constitutionally, and recognize this historical um, thing? Where is the limiting principle?
1: So the first thing to say on that is, it is of course difficult in the same way as it is with speech. And so when you go back to the original understanding, you have to use the terms of art from the time. So for example, the freedom of speech, which the First Amendment protects, meant something more concrete in the 18th century. Um, It was mostly understood as political speech. I'm not saying the Supreme Court is wrong to have uh, expanded this, um, but there is no way that any of the founders, any of the drafters of that amendment would have considered, say, a T-shirt full of profanity to be covered by uh, the freedom of speech. And arms has a similar heritage where it means something concrete. And now arms is a much broader term. We would describe, for example, nuclear weapons as being arms. But in the 18th century, um, Scalia and Heller points to Black's Law Dictionary. It had a much narrower definition that was opposed to uh, ordnance, ordnance being bombs, shells and so forth. This gets a bit complicated because in the early Republic. Private citizens did actually own ordnance and they also owned warships, but I don't think they were protected under the Second Amendment. But and if, it,
4: if I may, mean, bear arms has, at least to modern years, a connotation of not just me individually in a burglar, but in an organized, it, it has an organization, a militia, uh, something a good deal more serious than a little handgun and a, and a, and a mugger.
1: Well, it doesn't. It doesn't. And there's a lot of use of bare arms in an individual context. There's a lot of use in military context. Um, But traditionally, uh, and and I need to bring up the exact Black's Law dictionary definition, but um, in the definition, it mentions rifles, carbines, pistols, daggers, Um, These are it's difficult to draw a line of your court, but a good way of thinking about this, in my view, is anything that you can both carry on your own and discriminate with. Uh, So if you can carry it as a weapon and if it's not, you know, uh, going to destroy huge numbers of people, um, then that is what was considered to be an arm both in Britain and in the early republic.
3: And Charlie, isn't are the uh, is the National Guard really the, the modern day manifestation of the of the militias uh, you know, back you know, in, the, in the colonial period and the and the post independence period and, and some of these state militias right that that uh, that still exist outside completely of any kind of uh, Department of Defense you know, standards uh, and, are, and are affiliated only with, with that particular state.
1: Yeah. Although um, Tench Cox, who was a lawyer in Philadelphia at the time of ratification, uh, wrote this explanation of the Second Amendment, uh, which you know, reads today as somewhat radical, where he talks about how the people should be able to overthrow the government if it becomes tyrannical. And he describes the militia as being everyone. I mean, now, what he meant by that, of course, was men who were 21 or older, and in most states, uh, who were white. And, and you know, we shouldn't gloss over the outrageous um, exclusions from constitutional protections that African Americans have suffered throughout. Um, uh, American history. Although it is worth saying on that, that Justice Tawney, who wrote the Dred Scott decision, one of the reasons he doesn't want blacks, as he puts it, to become citizens is because he just assumes that if they're citizens, they will enjoy the right to bear arms and carry guns wherever they go. He says this in the opinion. Um, but yeah, he saw the militia as being pretty much anyone, and and this is again difficult for us to imagine because we have police. But you know, back back in the early republic, you would. You would pull people sort of from the street, um, not just if you needed to fight the government, which thankfully was rare, um, but if you needed to apprehend a, a criminal or a runaway or even a deserter. And the assumption there is that every man is armed uh, and that you could do that in a, in a meaningful way. Um, so, yeah, I think the modern incarnation would be the National Guard, but, but historically it was something much broader than that.
2: It's worth saying, isn't it, Charlie, before we leave the history behind <laughs> that one of the sort of key moments in the American Revolution is the attempt by right. the British forces to take the armaments away from the Massachusetts Patriots, and and in that sense, when when all of this is being thought about, there's some very very hot live history in people's minds. Exactly, exactly,
1: and and the founders were were they were aware of history outside of their own tradition i mean the federalist papers they're full of references to the french and the greeks and the romans and they see in all those cases that that arms in the hands of the people would have would have made a difference and so yeah when you get to 1775 and the british trying to take the stores <laughs> in massachusetts then they think aha i've seen this movie before
2: did you ever go to see the battle of lexington reenactment? Uh, which is well worth doing. Have, have you ever done that? It's a great test of whether you're still British or not.
1: I have actually seen that. And I remember being told by the guy I went with that one of the problems uh, is the number of trees, um, because they planted all these trees as some sort of conservation effort. But apparently at the time it was almost completely open because they cut them all down. <laughs> so it's this false impression. I was very
2: challenged when I went to, to that reenactment, because when the redcoats appear, Playing Men of Harlech, I immediately sided with them. <laughs> but that was that was quite a while ago. not.
4: Hopefully,
2: you've overcome that. I yeah. have overcome it, but it's still it's it is. I mean, Charlie, let's face it. This is the we should we should accept the kind of tension at the heart of being both a British and an American citizen, and it's not nothing lays it more clearly bear than this issue
4: this this is not such ancient history i want to stay with history as, as the economist it's not such ancient history as, as we're talking about and you've, you've written about this um you know most uh, where did a lot of gun control come from in the united states the desire of uh, white people especially in the mm-hmm. south to keep blacks from owning guns and in so that they could be terrorized by the right. ku klux klan by organized armed groups uh, the desire to have guns would then be to not not just not just you one-on-one against a burglar, but to have the kind of weaponry that could um, stop, you know, when we talk about the armed posse that's going to round up um, criminals, well, there were armed posses out there to round up uh, quite innocent Black people and do horrible things to them. This is not so far in our history. And it is, you know, if we talk about all the National Guard, well, it's not clear which... City pretty clear which side the state national guard was on uh, in that one as well. I think that 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 brings up, um, we like to think, oh yes, all these, this, uh, you know, government tyranny and defend yourself against it is, is ancient history. But I think it's quite an uncomfortable, uncomfortably recent fact. It's an uncomfortable fact for arms, uh, people who want to have uh, uh, arms restrictions. It is is a fact right now that uh, many blacks and other minorities are buying guns like crazy because they're faced with a, a wave of crime this time, Not. Fortunately, a, waste, uh, a wave of Ku Klux Klan. Uh, on the other hand, you know, it's, we Americans start to get all weepy about, yes, defend yourself against tyranny and, and the peasants in England who, who were uh, disarmed against the landlord and so forth. But places around the world where people are defending their political rights violently um, don't, Look particularly nice. <laughs> they are they are full of horrible violence, and you know uh, uh, Neil brought up Northern Ireland when we were talking about this earlier. There's a place where people were, as they thought about it, using <laughs> only weapons to defend their political rights, and that's certainly not a particularly good. So this, I, I think, this is the most problematic uh, part of the whole question.
2: I remember growing up in Glasgow uh, in the 1970s. We were very happy that there were no rifles in circulation because of, of course, what was going on in Northern Ireland where the sectarian division that was absolutely a part of of life in Glasgow uh, had become uh, the basis for something close to civil war. So that's part of what informs my skepticism, I suppose, about widespread gun ownership. But here's the thing we haven't really grasped uh, the nettle of yet. Public opinion in the United States Vera's around on this issue, but the latest poll suggests that more than half of Americans think there's a problem and that there needs to be some greater uh, restriction, even if they disagree about what form that should take. So leaving the history behind for just a little, at least, let's talk about how things are today, because there's certainly a widespread sentiment, but far from universal, but a pretty widespread sentiment that we have a problem. And I'm inclined to think that we do have a Problem. Um, and it's not just, I don't just think that when there's a school shooting or when there's a mass shooting, I, I generally think there's a problem. But I'd love to get your thoughts on this, Charles, and, and what you think, if anything, needs to be changed.
1: Well, I, I am, as a practical matter, skeptical of a great deal of gun control because I think when you start with 400 million guns and an individual right, the, the likelihood that whatever you try is going to help is fairly slim. And that skepticism is compounded by the fact that uh, of those 40,000 deaths every year that um, were mentioned, the majority, nearly two-thirds, are suicides. And that doesn't, of course, mean that those deaths don't matter. Far from it. But America does not have a particularly high suicide rate. it's about the same as France's. It's uh, lower than Cuba's. uh, It's half of um, Japan's. Um, it's less than half of, um, of South Korea's. Um, and although there is conflicting evidence on this, there's not a huge amount, um, of data that suggests that guns make suicides more prevalent. They certainly make them easier, but you run very quickly into the problem of substitution. Um, it's a thorny area. Um, so, um, I think really the, the the bigger question is, what could you do that would work within the Second Amendment, and we've done quite a lot of it. It's right. my view, um, you know, we have background checks uh, on commercial sales, um, we have. Um, uh, you know, about 20,000 laws at the federal and state level governing the mm-hmm. purchase and ownership and, and use of guns. And what we have discovered over the last 30 or 40 years is that many of the assumptions that uh, drove Americans to a far more gun control friendly position uh, than they now uh, have in the 70s, 80s and early 90s um, uh, is wrong. That being that if you have more guns in circulation and you loosen the laws that regulate them, that you will see more crime, more death um, and um, more violence. And it's just not true. The number of guns in the United States in 1990 was about 190 million. Now it's 400 million. Um, In 1990, uh, it was difficult in all but about 10 um, states to get a concealed carry permit. Now, every state has a concealed carry permit system, and only eight of them really restrict it. Uh, m- almost every state either has a shell issue regime where anyone who's over the age of 21 can get a carry permit, or they don't have any permits at all. There's now 22 states, I think it's be 25 by the end of the year, that don't have any systems. At all. And what we've seen over that period, and I'm not suggesting incidentally that this is a causation, but what we've seen over that period is a dramatic drop in crime and a dramatic drop in gun crime. Um, And every time that, say, the Rand Corporation looks at all of the evidence here that comes from left and right, pro and anti, they throw their hands up and say, we don't know, we we just can't see any patterns. And as a result, I am somewhat skeptical um, of of measures. I'm not closed-minded, I'm interested to debate them, Um, but I I have a a frustration with the political debate in this area because whatever happens, the party in this country that wants more gun control on balance, the Democrats, argue for the same stuff. So if a guy who is um, not allowed to own a gun walks into a gun-free zone and murders people with a pistol, the first thing you will hear from Chuck Schumer is we need to ban AR-15s, regulate concealed carry, uh, and put in universal background checks on private sales. And you know, usually none of those three ideas, which are trotted out every single time, even intersect with what has happened. Um, and I think that really matters because. My suspicion is that if the Democratic Party, which I think earnestly wants to improve this situation, uh, by and large, had uh, an idea that it believed would work, and that was related to the inputs that we see, it would have proposed it. And my, my conclusion is it doesn't know what to do either.
4: Could I echo, um, as much of our political system seems to have continually the same answer, always in search of different questions. And that's exactly the tendency you just uh, you just uh, pointed out. Now, you know, the, let us define what the question is and then maybe the answers will become clearer. If the question is reduce the number of people who die from gunshots in the US, uh, it, it, once we could agree on that, then I think you're exactly right. It, the answers become fairly obvious. Simply reducing the supply of guns, the number of guns outstanding in the US isn't gonna make any difference. Why uh, you put up the numbers um, there's 400 million guns. You said uh, 40,000 people get shot by guns. Mm-hmm. So a quick division, one in hundred thousand guns gets actually used to, to shoot a person. Just uh, that reducing the supply, it's going to take a long time before that makes any difference. Of course, you know the, the last people to give up the guns are going to be the ones who want to use them to shoot. So it's not that we have a gun problem, it's that we have a crime problem. Um, and it, now that does, Suggest that there are things we could do, um, and not so much on the supply of guns. Again, if you're trying to restrict the hundred, the ninety, the all but one out of hundred thousand that don't get shot each year, there's, that's a lot of bureaucracy to restrict the one that does get used to shoot someone each year. But um, in America, it could be the case that using a gun to in a crime or to shoot someone could much more reliably lead to consequences. Uh, isn't that uh, that that the answer? Uh, which is um, you know n- not again. I, I, I cited the number of twenty percent of murders get solved, but many more uh, guns are used in, in in crimes and don't lead to uh, uh, don't don't lead to bad outcomes. So. I guess this is a tired talking point enforce the laws we have but uh, you know I, I always think in terms of demand and supply enforce the laws we have so that the the people who like to shoot people with guns have much less of an incentive to do so mm-hmm. that that seems like there are many avenues for fixing that incentive other than just trying to reduce the numbers of guns giving the overwhelming numbers of guns that never get used for anything. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, can we talk a bit about that? Charles, I have the impression that, uh, and it's a while since I looked at the statistics, that a really large proportion of the guns that we know are out there are owned by a relatively small number of people who amass enormous arsenals for their own personal gratification. And I've seen some of these (laughs) arsenals, Texan friends, I'm thinking about you. And, And so there's a kind of slight delusion if you talk to people in Europe about this that I mean every American is is packing heat but actually there's there's a huge skew in in gun ownership isn't that
1: right that's true uh, although it's still relatively common for Americans to own guns and increasingly so especially in the last two years the uh, the number of households with guns has increased and, and different sorts of people have started buying guns as well um the, the statistics that we have are, are quite difficult to parse because a lot of them rely upon self-identification. And, for example, you know, if the General Social Survey calls you up and says, hi, I'm from the federal government, do you have any guns? There are quite a lot of people who are not going to say yes. <laughs> um, uh, so, you know, that number is probably under 50 percent, but not that much under 50 percent. Um but you know that to me is is interesting, especially when it relates to say suicides. But beyond that, I don't I, I don't think it particularly uh, intersects with the problem because most mass shooters buy their guns from a shop. They go through a background check and then they go and do what they were going to do because they weren't on the radar before. Um, and most criminals buy their guns on the black market, and um, you know, we do have an awful lot of systems in place to try and stop guns from making their way onto the black market. Um, But as was just said, one of the the problems is we're really, really bad at enforcing those laws. And New York historically has been good at enforcing those laws, although now they apparently have decided to give up on enforcing laws at all. Um, But cities such as Chicago, uh, which have a real problem with with gun violence, and also that that lead to um, you know illegal um, gun uh, trafficking throughout the Midwest. Um, they don't do it. Uh, that you know Kevin Williamson, my colleague, has written a great deal about this. They just they overlook uh, straw purchasing and gun trafficking um, in in favor of other more serious crimes and. That's where the vast majority of guns used in in crimes come from. You know, it's not the 35 to 45% of people who have a gun in their house.
2: Can we talk a bit about the purchases during the pandemic? I I, I want to make a couple of confessions. The first is that I'm the only person on the Goodfellows team to have fired a firearm live during a show. And it was during the pandemic when I was based in Montana and a woodpecker was attacking my largely wooden house. I'm gonna have to interrupt my contribution to shoot a woodpecker, yeah, a woodpecker, because right now, if you listen, you can hear it drilling a hole uh, in the wall of my house. This is Montana living, and I think it's important that we share the experience with our viewers, so... uh...
0: (laughs) So here goes. <laughs> so we've established that a year from now, Neil Ferguson is yeah. gonna be in jail for shooting no, well, birds.
4: Well, well, Neil is showing off his second <laughs> amendment uh, stuff, which you can't do in Scotland.
2: I missed. The second confession is, and it illustrates an important thing about life in a state like Montana, that I was one of those people who bought firearms during the pandemic. and it was a kind of subtle social pressure that led me to do it where my local friends were saying to me, wait, you don't, you don't have any guns. And I, I, I felt socially at a great disadvantage. I, I said, well, no. And they said, well, you can't live here and not have guns. Like I was a simpleton. Uh, I mean, there are bears, there are all these critters trying to eat your house and I found myself within a very short space of time, the proud owner of two really quite fearsome firearms, which are now securely locked in a cabinet that I almost never even go near. But I I really am interested in what led people to buy so many weapons in 2020. And I think it continued into 21. I haven't looked at the numbers recently. There was a huge spike in purchases of guns. I'm not, I'm not sure that many people bought them out of, social embarrassment like me. But what was going on there, and I do distinctly remember conversations during the peak of the protests following George Floyd's death. Although there was not the slightest unrest in the neighborhood where we were living, I I do remember conversations about what you'd be doing if things really got out of hand. In America, I can
0: remember those conversations. So talk a bit about that because it's a fascinating moment in American history. Well, let me step in for one second here, Neil. Which state in America has the highest percentage of gun owners in its population? Charlie should know that. Montana. Alaska montana 66 california is about 28 uh, percent and let me build on neil's question here it's a great question uh five million more americans became gun owners during the pandemic the show by the way is a product of the pandemic um we've also seen charles a rise in gun ownership among minorities black hispanics and asians uh is this due to personal safety is this a product of defund the police uh there's also the political element the joke that when democrats come into power the first thing you should do is invest in gun stock because guns guns always Go up in their values. What's actually going on here?
1: I think all of those things. And I also think the pandemic made people feel a little bit like a prepper, (laughs) (laughs) that it was the closest that we'd come. I mean, my parents are uh, British and they're they're anti gun, and they couldn't be gun owners in Britain if they wanted to. But at Christmas, uh, my mom said that they'd had a conversation at the beginning of the pandemic and said, Well, what? happens if this is the big one, if this is the end of the world. And um, my mom had said, well, it will be fine because they grow all their own vegetables in the garden. And so they would have food. And my dad said, he'd said to her, well, it won't be fine because you know I'm 74 and you're 69. And if it's the end of the world and people realize that we have a, a food supply in the garden they'll just come and take it. Um, and he said, for the first time we thought, well, you know, there's a way of getting <laughs> Um, around that, but it's not available to us. Now, they don't want to buy guns, don't get me wrong. Um, But it had occurred to them uh, that they might be uh, somewhat at risk, and I think it occurred to quite a good number of other people as well. And when you combine that with the riots that we saw and the feeling that the police were pulling back, I think you could easily get to five million people deciding to um, invest in a backup plan.
4: Yeah, it's not uh, it's not bears neil <laughs> i've lived in the south side of chicago before this time but during uh times of unrest and we considered the possibility when when we called the cops once because we thought there was a burglar, and the cops made sure to get there about an hour later. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the cops never want to show up while the action, and that's I think you know the central. Why do people, especially in poor neighborhoods, especially blacks and the minorities, why are they buying guns? Because when they call the cops, if the cops show up at all, the cops show up an hour later. And if you want, we, we talk about the government as monopoly violence and so forth. Well. Uh, exercise your bloody monopoly. Uh, I'm back to lower demand. Uh, it's very clear why people uh, demand guns for personal safety, because the state isn't providing personal safety anymore. Um, and and I, it, rather than talk about gun control, I, I think, you know, I'm going to go back to uh, lower the demand for it. And we thought about it too. So you were off in Montana, and there was a protest right out in front of our house. And... and uh, <clears throat> It was, in our case, a very peaceful protest because it was all the well-thinking white people of uh, Palo Alto out there protesting, not, uh, (laughs) we're we're far, far away from the people they pretend to care about. But nonetheless, there's nothing quite like a completely cop-free, quite loud protest going by your front door to remind you what things are like, and the videos of the quite violent protests that uh, you can find uh, on the internet where people, people were attacked, people were beaten to death. Uh, um, there's this question about, are you allowed to use guns to defend property, which some people tried to and some people didn't. But, but nonetheless, that feeling of, of uh, crime going out but then also social unrest, gangs, large gangs of people coming after you. I think that is a that has been a big incentive towards the demand for guns, which is where we ought to be talking, not the supply.
2: Hr, you've been notably quiet, but it seems to me that it's time we got some expert insight from the member of the team who's fired the most rounds. It seems to me one of the issues here is is civilians with insufficient training getting their hands on the kind of weapons. That uh, only a skilled soldier should be handling. Tell us a bit about how much training you think it's necessary for someone to have before they
3: they own a firearm. Well, it has, there, there has to be just basic safety training, right? I mean, and this is you have to you have to know how to load, uh, unload, clear a weapon. You should also be familiar on how to you know disassemble it and clean it and reassemble it. And then you have to you have to get some experience actually shooting it. You have to learn some of the you know, the fundamentals of, you know, muscle discipline and, and and especially you know, clear your weapon, clear your weapon. And, you know, the accidents that you see that occur infrequently in the military because of the training emphasis uh, typically are those that involve someone not properly clearing a weapon system. And then, of course, you know, you want to be smart about what weapon you get. You want to get a weapon for the purpose. If you're hunting, you want a decent hunting uh, weapon. You also want to look at the safety features on that weapon to make sure that, you know, you, it does have a really strong manual space, as well as uh, other safety features that can prevent an accident. But I, I think that you know, training should be part of the program. And Charlie, you're, uh, I'd like to ask you, what, what do you think? It, it, what exists now in legislation in terms of safety courses? Are, are they required when you when you buy a weapon? Uh, I think you know, if you're going <laughs> you know, to, you, if you have to take a if you motorcycle safety class to get on a motorcycle, uh, it makes sense to me that you would also have to take a weapon safety class.
1: Well, it depends on the state. Um, the, the, the problem is that the difference between states that have safety uh, rules as a condition of either purchasing a firearm or getting a, a, a carry permit and the states that don't is negligible, if not non-existent. Uh, you know, As I mentioned earlier, we've seen a a flowering of so-called constitutional carry states in the last 20 years. Um, 20 years ago, there was one Vermont. It had been one since 1777. That's how the Constitution had been interpreted. No such thing as a permit to buy, own, or carry a firearm. And that was joined first by Alaska in 2003, uh, and then by Arizona in 2010. And then the floodgates opened, and now more than 60% of the American land mass is in constitutional carry um, states. And there's just no difference between states that have training regimes and states that don't. And you know, it sounds counterintuitive, but that's one reason why it's spread out. And I, I remember when I moved to uh, Florida, I was shocked that I didn't have to have my car inspected. Um, in Britain, you have to have your car inspected. It's called an MOT. And in the Northeast, uh, you you often have to have um, your car inspected. And, and I looked into why and all the statistics said it doesn't actually make much difference. Uh, so Florida dropped it. And, and it does seem to be the, the case. I think if there were a big difference, I would be a lot more uh, in strongly in favor of, of having... Training attached to the uh, dissemination of concealed carry permits, but given that there isn't, it just looks to me like putting obstacles in people's way and and, and charging them money um, for a, a permit that isn't doing very much. So I'm I'm on the constitutional carry side of this, but on pragmatic rather than uh, ideological grounds. And
3: I just remember I just remember uh, I just remember speaking at the funeral for my fellow fourth grader. Uh, who was who was killed by a weapon in a household uh, because the you know the the weapon was not cleared uh, right. and and the ammunition was not secured. so I just think you know it, it's it's not about people endangering themselves it is to a certain degree, but it's it's about them endangering others if they're unfamiliar you know with uh, uh, with weapons and and I just think it makes sense to do it you know the the other issue that's related i think to to you know to gun control or you know, the, or policy, but I don't know what the remedy would be is, or what the truth is, this is even. Charles, But uh, it, it, a lot of the it, the you know the cartels from Mexico import drugs to the United States and export weapons, you know, back uh, in, into Mexico. Uh, are, are there any policies that could be in place to, to maybe restrict the illegal weapons trade that is actually contributing to the cycle of of you know violence and insecurity uh, in you know in Mexico and in Central America associated with narcotics trafficking?
1: I mean, the the main thing I would say, again, is is enforce the laws that we have, because we do have quite a lot of laws in this area that uh, the ban on straw purchasing is designed precisely to prevent weapons from being bought in stores in bulk, uh, handed off to people for whom they weren't intended and then traded to criminals. And we're just really, really bad. And I I will say something for Jeff Sessions, uh, of whom I wasn't an enormous fan. He increased prosecutions for uh, straw purchases by 30 or 40%, and the Biden administration has dropped the ball. Um, you know, it, It's not as simple as Republicans v Democrats, but that was a really good move that the Trump administration took, and it's gone by the wayside.
4: Let me, let me put in a couple of pot shots here. Sorry for the inappropriate metaphor. One is perhaps training is training is good for safety. Uh, when I read these events, I'm I'm astounded at how bad the marksmanship of most Americans is. So perhaps training would be counterproductive, and that people would be more likely to hit what they're trying to shoot. That. that was a joke. Um, in this discussion of uh, you know um, ha- being able to have weapons for uh, personal protection, that doesn't argue against um, registration, against knowing who has the guns, being able to trace back where every bullet came from and accountability for misusing the guns. Yet a lot of the uh, anti-gun control, a lot of what you referred to as the constitutional, um, uh, I forget what the word it was, uh, moments. Those are against, you know, e- even knowing who has the guns and and accountability for how you use the guns. Uh, third, little pot shot, I would be curious to hear about other countries that have a great deal of gun ownership and much less misuse. Uh, Switzerland, Israel, Finland. Uh, granted, these are these, these people get to own automatic weapons, and yet there's a whole lot less um, uh, mayhem with it. And finally, drugs. I'll I'll just be the libertarian economist again. Uh, we've created this illegal, extremely violent gun trade. We've created a demand for weapons. We've created narco states south of the border with insane drugs, uh, drug control laws. And are we really, uh, yes, people wasting their lives on heroin isn't such a great deal, but is uh, is the uh, enormous amount of carnage and, and destruction of so many countries really worth it?
1: So I, I'm profoundly against gun registration and uh, I'll explain why. Um, The ideological argument, if you like, uh, which is also a practical argument, is that if the government doesn't know who has guns and where those guns are and what those guns are, then it can't confiscate them.
4: No, but let let me quickly. So this is very important. This is the question of are guns there for your protection against crime or are guns there for your protection against the government and to threaten an insurrection if your liberties
1: are... are Well, no, but I don't think it implicates that. It's an important distinction, but I don't think the gun registration question implicates that. If a government is unable to... Uh, look at a list and work out where the 400 million guns in circulation are, then it can't take them away, irrespective of whether the people who own them would have any need to fight that government. That is, if you are opposed to gun control, a good thing. So I don't want to make it easier for governments to take away guns, even if I don't think I'll ever have to fight that government. But
4: Yeah, I'm, I'm just arguing for, for um, you need to have, concept. if you misuse a gun, it was a very quick and reliable consequence for it. And there, we're, we don't, we're not at that point.
1: Well, we're not, but, but I would just say on, on another practical level, um, the, the reason we have almost no gun registries left in the United States is they don't do anything. And that's why Canada got rid of its long gun registry. It's why New Zealand got rid of its gun registry. Um, Chicago got rid of its gun registry that none of these jurisdictions could point to a single crime that had been solved or helped by the existence of the gun registry. And, and in Canada especially, the law, I believe, when it was passed was, was supposed to cost $20 million Canadian dollars, and it cost $2 billion. and eventually the Western states and uh, provinces in Canada said, no, this is enough. Um, in terms of consequences, I do agree with you. I mean, for example, I, I don't know to what extent or how you would write this law if you wanted a law. But one thing I've noticed here in uh, North Florida is the police often put out uh, messaging saying, please, for the love of God, lock your car at night. And the reason for that is huge numbers of North Floridians have guns and they keep them in their car. Uh, And uh, in fact, in Florida, you don't need a permit to keep a gun in your car because under the law, your car is regarded as an extension of your home. And uh, that is where an awful lot of criminals in North Florida get their guns, too, because they break into the car, they take the gun out of the glove box, and then they've they've got a gun. Um, There are no criminal penalties whatsoever uh, for leaving your car unlocked uh, on the street overnight with a gun in the glove box. And on the one hand, I think it's difficult to punish people for being the victim of a crime. I mean, if somebody breaks into my house and steals a gun, should I be held liable for that? On the other hand, I do think that culturally, it's really important to prevail upon people that they should keep their weapons secure, whether that's uh, in their car or in their home. And it doesn't bother me in the slightest that the police and the sheriff's department around here repeatedly tells people to do this. Um, There was a case of the 15-year-old, I think he was in Michigan, who shot his classmates about two or three weeks ago, maybe slightly more. His parents essentially availed him of that gun. They were charged. I saw people saying they were overcharged. They weren't. They should go to prison. Um, I mean, a 15-year-old is not allowed a gun. We're not talking here about uh, an adult. Uh, The idea that you could leave a gun lying around and then that you would not be held culpable for your child taking it to school and shooting people, to me, is absolutely absurd. And I would support strict penalties of that sort in every state in the union. Um, So I do agree with you in principle. I just think gun registries are the wrong way to go about it. We're
0: getting short on time here. So let me uh, throw a question to the group. And that is the Second Amendment Uh, here in America. If the Second Amendment is no more Charles and group, what happens? Are, would blue states around America immediately cease guns? How would that be effectively done without bloodshed, without violence? What about red states? Would everybody owning a gun now want to flock to Florida and Texas? Uh, but then we look around the world, the geopolitics of the Second Amendment. What if there was a Second Amendment in Ukraine or Taiwan, let's say, a country that either has an oppressive country or is looking at being invaded? Does that change the political geopolitical order at all?
2: I can't see a scenario in which the Second Amendment would be removed or any... Right such drastic constitutional change would occur. So I'm going to regard that first question as, as a non-event. I think when you ask the question, and this is, this is kind of more challenging, would, would, uh, would Putin be able to rule Russia in the way that he does if there were a Russian second amendment? It gets into, into more interesting a territory. Now, I'd love to hear Charles's thoughts on this. My sense is that Russia's political history is so profoundly different that it's very difficult to imagine how the Russian government at any point in its history would have been okay with the Second Amendment. So you have to kind of imagine a parallel universe where Russian history unfolds completely differently, beginning at around about the time of Peter the Great. But but Charles, what are your thoughts on this? And do you have good examples of, of historical outcomes that would have been different with American-style gun ownership?
1: Well, um, quickly on the first question, uh, if the Second Amendment went away, and we're assuming that the federal government is allowed to regulate firearms, which I I don't think it is, but I'm a a holdout on this, um, you would still have 45 states with state-level Second Amendment equivalents. um, Mm -hmm. So you would probably see more strict gun control in, say, California, which doesn't have one. Um, But in most states, they would run into the same legal challenges as they do under the Second Amendment. And in fact, probably stricter challenges as well, um, because some of the states have much stronger Second Amendments um, than the one in the federal constitution. Um, On the second question, I mean, this is, of course, the the big question, because whenever you say, well, we should all have firearms in case the government turns tyrannical, people say either that will never happen. Okay, may I introduce you to the 20th century? Uh, or that there's nothing that a well-armed population could do against modern fighting force. And I mean that sounds convincing superficially until you look at what a, a whole bunch of peasants with light arms did in Vietnam and in Afghanistan and Iraq. And unless you believe that, say, the American government would be more brutal with its own population than it was prepared to be abroad, which I don't, I do think in a Western country the existence of that many guns probably is a, an ultimate check. Um, would that apply to Russia? <laughs> would that apply to Taiwan? That's quite difficult to answer. I, I do know that when the Second World War broke out, the, uh, there was a, a committee in, in part uh, aided by the nascent National Rifle Association, which sent hundreds of thousands of guns to Britain for the Home Guard. A lot of those guns came from American citizens who shipped them over because um, in the 1930s and at the outbreak of the war, the British government actually collected up an awful lot of guns, um, partly to, to use in the war effort and partly to make sure there was no, um, what would we put it, revolt uh, among the population. Um, so clearly they thought that it, it, would be, it would be beneficial, albeit not, so that the British could fight their own government, but so they could fight if there were an, an invasion. Um, I, I just really ultimately come down to what is probably partly a philosophical question, which is, well, do you believe that individuals, whether in their own home or uh, living under a tyranny, have the right to try? And um, I know this wasn't the question, but I find all too often people who are opposed to the Second Amendment they start by saying, well, it wouldn't help you if the American government became a tyranny. And I don't think that's the important question. I mean, I I, I don't need to prove to the government that I can win an argument to claim the First Amendment as a right. Um, I, I don't need to prove that my religion or lack of religion is true in order to claim my religious liberty as a right. The, the, the point that has been made by defenders of the right to keep and bear arms since the Emperor Justinian is that you as an individual have the right to try to defend your own life. And if you die in the Warsaw Ghetto trying, okay, but I don't believe that governments have the right to take that away from you. Um, and I would much rather be sitting in North Florida with my AR-15 <laughs> than I would in Kiev and um, Uh, or I would in Taiwan, because at least I'd have um, a shot. And to me, that's why it is protected, because really, the Second Amendment is an auxiliary right. The real right is to self-defense. And the argument has been for a long time that if you have a right to self-defense, you have to have an auxiliary right to the tools of self-defense, because otherwise you have a survival of the fittest situation. Otherwise, if you're a five foot two woman, you don't really have any capacity to defend yourself. But if you are a five foot two woman with a Glock, then you have a fighting chance against a big man. And, and I think that is a, a noble principle and I'm glad it's enshrined into American law.
4: I'll just add the, uh, uh, I'm chiming in on the same points. Notice that totalitarians are unwilling to find out <laughs> uh, that you're. <laughs> uh, so if you make the argument, oh well, you know nobody could resist against a modern state. Well, Vladimir Putin's not about to let his find out if his citizens can resist against the totalitarian state. As you mentioned, yes, they you know put HR and his buddies and a couple tanks in charge, and they can they can steamroller us. But um, the government uh, uh, most governments are not willing to slaughter their own citizens. So uh, you, you have. The ability to put up a fuss against a government that's even the Soviets in the end. were unwilling to do it. Uh, So so that force. I think we see empirically that that force is there. Uh, This is the there's the problem of defending against yourself against tyranny also means uh, the possibilities of civil wars, which are very uh, unpleasant. And I think we've we've sat on that tension for an hour and we'll continue to do so. And I'll just my last comment will be where I started. I don't think the Second Amendment is anywhere near as binding as as we are talking about. Uh, as you noted, there's a whole lot of state amendments and state laws. There's the desire of people to uh, to um, have uh, guns and they will they will express that desire when they vote for politicians. And uh, and And when we find it convenient to ignore constitutional provisions, as in the economic arena, we just blast them blast them beyond and forget all about them so it is the continuing as the first amendment it is the continuing popular understanding that these are our rights that makes them our rights not something written on some peach of parchment 200 years ago that every bow, everybody bows to
0: HR, why don't we close out here. This all sounds like the price of being part of a republic. A couple of years ago, I gave a talk uh, out in rural Nevada, and it was um, a fundraiser that day. And what they were uh, had a raffle for was an AR-15. And there it sat in the middle of the field. Uh, it vanished at one point. Nobody blinked an eye. People were walking around during the day wearing pistols and sidearms. Nobody batted an eye. Uh, If any of us did this in downtown Palo Alto, we'd be in a world of hurt, I think. And I think if we opened up a gun firing range on University in Palo Alto, who would imagine what would happen. But the point here, HR is we're a culture, we're a republic that's balanced this way, which you can do in California, you can't do in Texas, vice versa. So how do we as a people learn to live with this balance? People who want guns are comfortable with guns versus people who are gunaphobes.
3: Yeah, I think it's just respect for each other's rights, you know, and and, and I I think that um, we express uh, you know our 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 uh, our desires uh, by voting and voting in people who are going to protect them, our rights if we're concerned about them. And I think that one of the things that bothers me these days is every debate is so vitriolic. I think because it seems as if people are assuming they have no agency, right? And and uh, and I think that what we have to recognize is if you don't like it, then then mobilize a, a political effort and you know, and make your make your vote known and change the law, change the policy through those who elect to office. So I, I think that there's there's just a, a great deal of intolerance these days. I think much of it is tied to a lack of a sense of agency.
0: All right, John, does that mean with your libertarian sensibilities? Neil, does that mean with your gunaphobe sensibilities?
2: Well, I'm just going to end by pointing out that it is not, in fact, Yemen that comes second to the United States in gun ownership per capita. It is the Falkland Islands, and if that doesn't allow us Brits to understand the American
3: position a bit better, then nothing will. And I will say, I will say though, there there is a long history of successful partisan defensive movements. And especially, I mean, with it within the context of World War II in Southeastern Europe, the Finns, of course, are you know a classic example. So uh, but I think even, even the Russians, the Russians during uh, Operation Barbarossa, uh and and uh and their ability to operate in the, in the forest against, uh, against uh, attacking German forces. I mean, quite, I think there are a lot of positive examples of an armed citizenry for being effective. And I think this does apply to Taiwan, uh, and I think it would make sense to make Taiwan indigestible, not just with, you know, with, with shoulder-fired uh, weapons, but maybe even some, you know, the police having uh, air defense weapons and so forth.
0: Charles, you were kind enough to tolerate all of us for the past hour. Why don't you close out, give us some final thoughts.
1: No, well, thank you so much for having me. This was was great. Um, I I still think it's odd that I talk about this as much as I do, given that I was strongly opposed to the private ownership of arms. I think I broadly shared Neil's perspective on it. And and, uh, I think you said, fear uh, of guns, and I thought Americans were quite mad. What really got me interested in this was that I came to believe that modern politicians were lying about the historical question. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a a great sin, not only because you shouldn't lie about uh, the law or history, but because if you do, then you don't understand your country uh, or the world um, as well as you should. And um, my aim within the gun debate uh, started with that historical question um, and then, and then transcended it. You know, the, the more I lived here, I actually came to believe that the economic question was much more complicated than I'd thought uh, that you can't just round up 400 million guns, that you can't treat people like, um, like widgets. Um, But I I, I think probably that the, best thing to, to say in closing um, is to echo what John said, and that is that despite all of the attention on the wording of the Second Amendment, it is not why the uh, right to bear arms has undergone a renaissance. Um, the reason the right to bear arms has undergone a renaissance is because the American public demanded it. Every single major change in American gun policy over the last 30 years at the state level and at the federal level came from public opinion and pressure on politicians. Um, It is just not the case that the American public is clamoring for radical change and the courts keep striking it down despite the Second Amendment having been uh, upheld as an individual right at the court, the court has taken almost no cases. It's largely ignored it. The lower courts have also ignored the question. Uh, and yet gun rights have trundled on um, at the local and state level. And that just says something profound uh, for, for better or for worse about the American character.
0: And Charles, you have an online course, the right to bear arms, the history of that. Um, where do I find that? How would I set up?
1: Um, so it's uh, with an outfit called chapter. Um, which is a, a startup that um, uh, they describe it as like a book club, but more fun. So it goes by week. Um, you can find that on their website, which is at getchapter.app. Or if you can't find that, you could go to my website, which is charlescwcook.com. Or you could just look me up on Twitter and it's pinned at the top of the page.
0: Okay. And I assume Neil has an open invitation to visit you in Florida and go shooting. Of course, anytime. <laughs> Charles Cook, thanks for joining us today. Gentlemen, thanks for a great conversation. That's it for this installment of Goodfellows. On behalf of my colleagues, Neil Ferguson, H.R. McMaster, John Cochran, our special guest today, Charles C.W. Cook. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for tuning in. Till we meet again, take care.
4: If you enjoyed this show and are interested in listening to more content featuring HR McMaster, subscribe to Battlegrounds, also available at hoover.org slash battlegrounds.
2: I narrowly missed the woodpecker, but it was a difficult shot.